0: pepperidge farm milano the 27 club is a new podcast about famous musicians who died prematurely and sometimes mysteriously at the age of 27 this podcast is hosted by me jake brennan creator and host of the hit music and true crime podcast disgraceland season one features 12 episodes on the life and death of Jimi hendrix the 27 club contains adult content and explicit language You can listen to The 27 Club on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Watch out for your ears. Welcome to Stuff You Missed in History Class from HowStuffWorks.com. Welcome to the podcast. I'm Holly Fry. And I'm Tracy D. Wilson. And today's topic is one I'm kind of crazy excited about because I love it. Yes, and it's also one that people have asked us to talk about. Yes, so it's like a double bonus at that point. Uh, you may have heard some about this tale, but we're actually going to do two parts. One is what actually happened when all of this was going on. And then we're going to do a second part about modern science uh, kind of analyzing this historical event. And what we're talking about today, it's um there are two famous lions called the ghost in the darkness. There have been movies made about them. Uh several actually, and they were a pair of lions that killed and ate dozens of people in Savo in 1898. But what you may not know is that the lions in that region in Savo uh, in Africa continue to attack humans and that there are actually a lot of question marks that have come up through the years about uh, the genetics of these lions, their behaviors, their adaptations to their environment. And as I said, because there is both this fascinating story of this particular event that is kind of considered a mythic killing spree and a lot of interesting science about what may have caused this kind of behavior and, and other subsequent things that have happened since then. Uh, this one is a two-parter. So today is the event and then next time will be science about it. There's so much science about it. There's a lot of science. I actually had to, had to edit out a good bit of the science just to keep it to two episodes. Cause we could have gone on easily for three and possibly more. Cause there have been some really good research projects around it. So first we're going to start, uh, in Savo. So the very name Savo is kind of ominous. In the Kamba language, which is also called Kikamba, uh, which is a narrow Bantu language, it actually means place of slaughter. And it got this name from an ancient battle that happened there between two tribes, the Masai and the Akamba. And Tsavo is uh, just a little bit smaller for visual reference than the state of Massachusetts. It covers about 20,000 square kilometers, and it sits in what is today southeastern Kenya. And its position is about 180 kilometers northwest of Mombasa. And it sits at the center of what's now known as the Greater Tsavo Ecosystem, which covers about 40,000 square kilometers. And it consists of multiple national parks and reserves, as well as ranch lands. The railway route that was built through Savo followed a footpath that had been used by slave caravans for hundreds of years to transport things from the African interior out to the coast. And the reason that we want to talk about the railroad route is because that's really where all of this started being documented and happening. Uh, in the late 1890s, the British East Africa Company started construction of a railway that would join Mombasa to Lake Victoria Along Africa's eastern seaboard, and it was going to be called the uh, Uganda Railway, but because there were just constant struggles going on with the construction of it and the company encountered one problem after another, some people started calling the project the Lunatic Express. It sort of speaks for itself at that <laughs> point. Uh, a lot of the workers who were hired for the construction had to be recruited from India because locals in the area were reluctant to, to come on board. Yeah, so that was one of the big challenges that they had. Uh, another is that living conditions were really not very good for the workers. Uh, the water was unclean. The workers often had dysentery. They would have fleas. They would have scurvy. They would have, you know, really horrific bouts of diarrhea that they had to survive through where they were risking um being completely depleted of their fluids. And they also lost so many animals that were part of the work process. Uh, In 1897 and 1898, uh, if you look at the veterinary records for the area and for the company, all 63 of the company's camels died. uh, 128 of their 350 mules died. 579 of their 639 head of cattle died. And all but 36 of their 800 donkeys that they started with died. So the animals were dropping at an alarming rate and the humans were getting sick pretty consistently. Well, and if you look back at the time period when this was happening, those animals were crucial to the construction process. Yeah. wasn't? I mean, it would have been an inconvenient to lose the primary food source. But, yeah, they couldn't. They were hauling things. They were, yeah. Right. They and, were part of a construction company. Yes. They, they were, they were not simply, uh, like herd animals being used to eat. Although that also, starvation's a problem. Yeah. So over the decade that it took to complete this project, the railway ended up costing $8 million to build, and that was four times more than the initial budget. And for the sake of comparison, that is more than $500 million today. Which. Is a huge amount of money, although part of me goes, well, you we built bigger. That's how, yeah. big, that's how jaded I am by yeah. <laughs> huge construction projects. Um, and then uh, a gentleman enters the picture who's sort of central to this whole story, and that's British Lieutenant Colonel John Patterson. And he was a civil engineer. He arrived at the harbor of Mombasa on March 1st of 1898, and his assignment uh, primarily was to head up the building of the permanent stonework and the embankments that were going to be part of this railroad route. So, at first, he was pretty pleased with the task at hand and happy in his work, but things shifted pretty quickly, and this is what he wrote from a passage in his book, The Man-Eaters of Savo. Unfortunately, this happy state of affairs did not continue for long, and our work was soon interrupted in a rude and startling manner. Two most voracious and insatiable man-eating lions appeared on the scene, and for over nine months, waged an intermittent warfare against the railway and all those connected with it in the vicinity of Tsavo. This culminated in a perfect reign of terror in December 1898, when they actually succeeded in bringing the railway works to a complete standstill for about three weeks. At first, they were not always successful in their efforts to carry off a victim, but as time went on, they stopped at nothing and indeed braved any danger in order to obtain their favorite food. Their methods then became so uncanny and their man-stalking so well-timed and so certain of success that the workmen firmly believed that they were not real animals at all but devils in lion's shape which is how they get the name the ghost in the darkness because people really do believe they might be spirits and yeah. not physical animals. Yeah, if you if you have heard the recent stuff you should know episode on werewolves, uh-huh. Uh, pretty much every culture that has any kind of big carnivore also has some kind of mythology about, about people becoming that thing in a demonic kind of way. So it's not totally surprising that, that these became to be thought of as some kind of supernatural. Yeah. Uh, and it, it really happened very quickly because it was just a few days after his arrival that Patterson was first informed that two lions had been spotted nearby. And not long after that, Two of the Indian workmen vanished, allegedly carried out of their tents in the night by lions. So at first, Patterson dismissed this lion story, and he thought that the men had maybe been killed by some of their co workers in some kind of murder slash theft incident. But when a third man vanished into the night, there were paw prints at the scene and witnesses convinced him that this really was the work of felines. Yeah. And it was, uh, he kind of mentions in the book, the third man was one that he knew and that was very well respected and very well loved by everyone. So that also helped give a little bit of credence to the idea that it was not just a murder over like a snagging somebody's payday. They, it, there really was something much bigger going on. And Patterson immediately set to tracking the lion responsible. Uh, he was also joined by a Captain Haslam, who was in Savo at the time. And they followed the bloody trail uh, left by this third vanishing. And they eventually happened upon a scene that Patterson describes in his account as the most gruesome he has ever seen. Uh, so the victim's head was there intact, and it was adjacent to the rest of his uh, remains, most of which had been consumed. So there were some bones left, uh, but the head completely intact. And this is also when Patterson became aware that there were actually two lions and not just one, because he did find two distinct sets of paw prints. So he set up a post in a tree above the large tent that was being shared by multiple co-workers in case the lions came back that night. And they heard roars approaching and then halting. And as the night wore on... Uh, Cries were heard from a camp about half a mile away where the lions had struck another tent. Yeah, they did not come back to that same tent as he had sort of hoped so that he could uh, kill them. They instead went somewhere else because they're wily. Uh, According to Patterson, the lions were, in fact, smart enough to hit different camps each night. So it made predicting their attacks really difficult. So if you can imagine the construction, it's going on along several miles at a time, and then it slowly moves forward as any railway at the time. We've talked about that happening here in the U.S. as the railway boom was happening. Mm -hmm. And uh, and so there would be camps sort of spread out by a half a mile or so between them, and the lions would just be hitting different ones each night. Uh, And this practice of theirs to be smart enough and wily enough to kind of choose different locations each evening Uh, Also fed the rumors among the men that the lions were supernatural because they were clearly too cunning to be normal beasts. Hey, Ollie, we have some exciting news. Yeah, I am wildly excited and uh, people will have another opportunity to watch me cry at art. (laughs) Yeah, you sounded so calm and it's not a calm situation at all. you're really going to enjoy the way that she gets into these conversations that feel like two friends talking, and they are an absolute delight. So subscribe to The Women on the iHeartRadio app, on Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. There were also a number of failed attacks during this time, including one incident which Patterson describes as rather comical and tension-breaking for the men, a trader from India. Riding his donkey down the road at night was attacked by a lion on the road, but the lion became entangled in the ropes that were holding all the, all of the traders' wares and packs in place. And the clattering startled the animal and sent it running away. And I, you and I both have cats. (laughs) It's reminding me of the time that one of mine got entangled in, in a shopping bag. And yeah. And it was terrifying for her. I have had the same. And it is, they just, and it's like, you know, people always, say if you're trying to train a cat to do not do a thing, you shake a tin can full of pennies, it will scare them away from the thing they were doing. And it works on giant wild cats as well. Uh Patterson also recounts an instance where the lions jumped onto a group tent and they actually dragged off a large bag of rice. Presumably, he theorizes thinking that it was a human. And they found the bag abandoned nearby the next morning. So that was also one of the ones that he kind of Frames is a more comedic event in the midst of all of this tension that was going on because they were constantly in fear that the lions were coming. Yeah, it reminds me of a little less humorous thing, which is like when the shark bites the person on the surfboard Uh and then goes, oh, wait, that's not a seal. (laughs) So the person is injured, but the shark has realized that it made an error. Yeah, similar. So to repel these attacks, Patterson started building all kinds of fences or BOMA around the tents. Uh, But he admitted that there was still this constant fear that a lion would just leap over them at any moment. And so he got into the habit of always having a rifle handy. There was also a string of lion sightings, and sometimes witnesses described them as very obviously stalking some of the men. During one overnight watch uh, in which they were set up in a wagon, Patterson and one of his colleagues were startled by the, one of the lions actually springing at them. And both fired their weapons, although they uh, the cat ran away, so they, it was clearly not a killing shot. But in the morning, they could only find one of the bullets, and Patterson believed that his had actually hit the mark. So this seems to have maybe scared the lions somewhat because their attacks did stop for a little bit. Although they continued to attack other locations, just not quite as often. Uh, this gap in lion attacks in the book is filled with Patterson describing his relations with the workmen, keeping the peace during arguments, uh, outsmarting the lazy people, that kind of thing. Yeah. Uh, and during this time, he also devised a plan for a trap because he felt that they could not presume that the lions were not coming back. Uh, and he describes it this way. I accordingly set to work at once and in short time managed to make a sufficiently strong tra- trap out of wooden sleepers, tram rails, pieces of telegraph wire and a length of heavy chain. It was divided into two compartments, one for the men and one for the lion. A sliding door at one end admitted the former, and once inside this compartment, they were perfectly safe, as between them and the lion, if he entered the other, ran a cross wall of iron rails only three inches apart and embedded both top and bottom in heavy wooden sleepers. The door, which was to admit the lion, was, of course, at the opposite end of the structure. But otherwise, the whole thing was very much on the principle of the ordinary rat trap, except that it was not necessary for the lion to seize the bait in order to send the door clattering down. So he had really decided and was very public about this, that he was going to end the scourge of these lions. So this trap was his sort of engineering mind, finding one way to address it. Not everybody was on board with this idea, though. (laughs) They were not. He went on to say the wiseacres to whom I showed my invention were generally of the opinion that the man eaters would be too cunning to walk into my parlor. But as will be seen later, their predictions proved false. For the first few nights, I baited the trap myself, but nothing happened except that I had a very sleepless and uncomfortable time and was badly bitten by mosquitoes. So initially it seemed like his, um the wise acres to whom he refers were correct and that the lions were not going to be lured into that trap. Yes, I also want to caution him about how he's going to get malaria if he does that. When you're possibly going to be eaten by a lion. I think malaria falls down the list of things you're worried about. Yes. Um, with that note, do you want to pause for a moment and take a word from our sponsor? We should do that. So a news flash to no one. The holidays are almost here, which for me is uh, a stressful time because I don't get any extra time as a gift. I wish I could. Uh, and often the thing that really sends me over the edge of stress is realizing that I have parcels that I have to mail. Because I think about the time that I'm going to lose racing to the post office and trying to battle traffic and trying to park and hopefully not drop my package as I walk from the vehicle to the post office, which has happened many times. Uh, and I don't want to deal with the crabby people that are also as stressed as me and possibly more so. So instead, stamps.com. With stamps.com, you can avoid all of those hassles of going to the post office during the holidays, and everything you would do at the post office, you can do right at your desk without having to deal with crabbiness or stress. You can buy and print official U.S. postage using your own computer and printer, and you can print postage for any letter or package right at the moment you need it and just hand it off to your delightful mail carrier, and you will be nicer to them, which makes them happier, too. It's super easy and convenient. Right now, you can take advantage of a special offer when you use our promo code, which is STUFF, and that entitles you to a no-risk trial plus a $110 bonus offer, and that includes a digital scale for perfect measurement of how much postage you need and up to $55 worth of free postage. So don't wait. Go to Stamps.com, and before you do anything else, click on the microphone at the top of the homepage and just type in STUFF. And that offer is all yours. That's stamps.com and enter stuff. So now, uh, back to the lions. So while the attacks had dissipated in most areas and even pretty much ceased near Patterson's own group, uh, the men had become more relaxed in their behaviors. As you can understand, the, the impending doom seemed less impending, so they all got a little. More chill about things. Uh, but the calm was broken one night when the lions broke through a boma that was protecting the sleeping quarters and carried off one of the men. And this time, uh, instead of what they had done previously where they dragged their prey far away to eat, the cats just kind of dropped the body about 30 yards from the tent where they had struck and just started eating there. Uh, shots were fired at them as this grisly scene played out, and, you know, men were witnessing this and it was very horrifying but they didn't manage to hit the cats and moreover they didn't even scare them they those lions just sat there and had their meal like there's just so much irritating noise but i'm really hungry which is really brazen it is very brazen and i i cannot imagine how horrifying it must have been to watch for the the men who were attempting to fire at them so, Patterson asked that they not bury the victim right away. He was hoping that the remains would lure the lions back the following night. But instead, they did what they had been doing before and they struck a different camp following the same pattern of consuming the victim pretty close to the campsite. Yes, yeah, so they had at this time altered their behavior where they didn't even bother to range away to eat. Uh, Patterson's account notes a pretty clear change, uh, and the progression of this brazenness in the lion's behavior as events continued. And in one excerpt he says the following. I have a very vivid recollection of one particular night when the brutes seized a man from the railway station and brought him close to my camp to devour. I could plainly hear them crunching the bones and the sound of their dreadful purring filled the air and rang in my ears for days afterwards. So he describes kind of being in his tent and knowing that even if he goes out and fires, he's not going to scare them away and will only risk, you know, potentially inviting their ire and just having to listen to them eat a man. Which will make your spine wiggle in ways it's not supposed to a little bit. It's very chilling. Yeah, well, and the the part of us that Naturally wants to anthropomorphize animals all the time. Yeah, kind of imagines that they're doing it on purpose at this point, just just to be jerks. <laughs> but we don't know. No, we don't know, and and that's a, that's a human behavior right. ascribed to an animal at this point. Right. How do you find a new way forward when suddenly you have to, ready or not? All four of my kids are grown and out of the house. And I was chucked out of a 25-year career. Super fun. Our lives have changed direction. So now what do we do? What's the first move when you have no idea where you're headed? For us, it was starting the Road to Somewhere podcast. And we still don't really know where we're going, but every one of our episodes takes us someplace a little different. It's super exciting, but if we're being honest, it can also get a little scary. Because maybe you're relocating. Or having your first baby. Or leaving a relationship. Just starting. Or just starting over. No matter what the change you're going through, the question is really the same. How do we get fearless when we feel uncertain? I'm Lisa Oz. And I'm Jill Herzig. Join us as we navigate our own big life changes on our podcast, The Road to Somewhere. Listen to The Road to Somewhere on the iHeartRadio app, on Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. So, uh, before this point, one of the lions would do most of the attacking and the other one would wait out in the bush. But at this point, their tactics had really changed. They would both enter the camp at the same time. They would each seize a victim, so men were being carried off in twos. Yeah, whereas prior, they would hit like one camp and then another camp a little ways away theoretically, so that they would each have a kill. They just started going in at the same time and kind of streamlining their own process. Uh, And as the attacks increased and the lions behaved with greater and greater confidence, it really started to take its toll on the workmen, as you can easily imagine. So this had started in March of 1898, And on December 1st of that year, the men actually approached Patterson as a group and they told him they were not working anymore. They had agreed to come to Savo to work for the government and build a railroad, not to become lion food. Let's talk about how I'm on the side of labor in this dispute. Oh, for sure. I mean, you can't. And he doesn't fault them at all. No. Uh, I think anybody that's reasonable could step back and go, yeah, I wouldn't work there either. That's that's a, a horrifying and terrifying situation to be in. So just before this strike, Patterson had contacted Mr. Whitehead, who is the district officer, to come and assist with taking down these two lions, which at this point Patterson had vowed to kill. Whitehead's welcoming party turned out to be feline. He and his manservant were attacked as they approached the camp. And his back was torn open by a claw and his manservant was killed. Yeah, they actually thought he had like missed a train because he didn't show up. But he had just gotten there very late and he foolishly tried to approach the camp in the darkness. And the lions obviously were stalking him. Uh, and so as a consequence of having been attacked and knowing this was, in fact, a very real situation, uh, with Whitehead's arrival, a very concerted effort went underway to slay these lions and get the Mammoth Railway Project which, if you look at it from a business perspective, was already behind schedule and very expensive, back on track. Uh, a superintendent of police and several other officials arrived from the coast. And Patterson's lion trap, despite all of the mocking, was put to use uh, as the cabal of men sort of waited for the next attack. Like They felt like they knew it was coming. They just didn't know when. So that night, a lion did enter the trap, but the outcome was not what Patterson had hoped for. Finding themselves at such close proximity to a man-eating lion, the men who were the bait for the trap reacted by freezing rather than acting. Only after an officer called out to them did they kind of snap out of their collective uh, daze and start to fire. And here is how Patterson described that. Then, when at last they did begin to fire, they fired with a vengeance. Anywhere, anyhow... Whitehead and I were at right angles to the direction in which they should have shot, and yet their bullets came whizzing all round us. Together they fired over a score of shots and in the end succeeded, only in blowing away one of the bars of the door, thus allowing our prize to make good his escape. How they failed to kill him several times over is, and always will be, a complete mystery to me, as they could have put the muzzles of their rifles absolutely touching his body. There was, indeed, some blood scattered about the trap, but it was small consolation to know that the brute, whose capture and death seemed so certain, had only been slightly wounded. And the men did track the lions, and while they heard them making noise periodically, they never actually made contact with them. So even in their injured state, they were able to uh, elude these trackers, which only gave their mythos as being supernatural greater um, fuel. A few days later, on December ninth, the lions were spotted nearby eating a donkey they had snatched in a failed attempt to take the person who owned that animal. Patterson felt that this would be his chance to catch the cats unawares and finally end all of this carnage. Yeah, he thought he was going to sneak up on them while they were busy eating. Uh And the hunt had some challenges <laughs> because that's just how things go with this particular project and lion situation. Uh, when they were first approaching the pair of lions in the bush, Patterson's guide made a misstep and snapped a twig. It's a classic film scenario. uh, And that alerted the animals. And Patterson then quickly organized, he retreated and organized what men were available to grab every noise-making item they could find in the camp and form a semicircle behind the area where the lions were so that they could flush them towards Patterson, who was waiting with a heavy rifle. And this seemed to work, uh, one of the lions was driven right into Patterson's sights until uh, the rifle, which had been lent to him by the superintendent of police, failed to fire properly. It was like every time they got so close and it seemed so obvious that they should be the victors in this situation, some weird or kooky thing would happen. And the lions would once again. Well, uh, and it's it's not surprising that this whole thing has been made into a lot of movies because it's a whole horrifying, suspenseful event. Yeah. But it's like the, they didn't even have to add in the bad screenwriting to add more tension to it because it was all actually happening naturally in the real story. Yeah, uh, there was a second shot that he was able to get off and he did hit the lion, but the cat was able to get away. Later that night, Patterson sat in a tree on a watch and he realized that one of the lions was stalking him. So he waited patiently for the cat to get closer and closer until he felt like he had a good shot and he took it. He heard a roar and thrashing, and he fired, he fired several more times into the bush where the lion was. Eventually, there was a stillness, and the first lion was finally dead. And when they finally retrieved the carcass, uh, it was, according to Patterson's account, nine feet eight inches in length and three feet nine inches high, and it took eight men to carry it back to camp. Not long after that, Patterson was able to successfully shoot and wound the other lion, but in spite of it having been obviously wounded, he couldn't find it the next morning. He really thought he was going to find it deceased somewhere in the, the bush. And he didn't, which was shocking. And in fact, they did not see it for 10 more days. Uh, then on December 27th, so at this point, it's been almost four weeks since the men quit. Uh, the lion attempted another attack. When Patterson was alerted to this, he fired shots in the air at first hoping, hoping to frighten it off because it had caught them by surprise. And he mostly just wanted to not lose any more people. Uh, and it was too dark for him to see clearly. So he didn't really think his odds were great to kill it then. But the lion did indeed retreat. The next night, Patterson and an assistant took up watching a tree and they found themselves being stalked. So similar to the way the first lion lost its life trying to stalk Patterson up a tree The second lion was fired upon when he got within 20 yards and they fired multiple shots, but they had to wait for daylight before they could follow the wounded animal. And they finally encountered him in a thicket and he was growling. But when Patterson reached out for his manservant to hand him his gun, he discovered that the man had actually run away in fear. So even though the lion was wounded it was clearly still very frightening and seemed to present a threat uh, so Patterson followed the man that had run because at that point he was unarmed in front of an angry and hurt lion and didn't know what it would do and the lion did indeed chase him but it had a broken leg from one of the shots uh, that had hit it and the men were able to take refuge once again up a tree. Trees are very vital to their safety in this story. As the lion turned to limp away, Patterson fired the killing shot, finally putting an end to what he had referred to as the Reign of Terror. And things were able to get back underway again. Uh, The railway was completed in 1901, and in 1907, Patterson published his account of the incidents. He kept the skulls, and he used their skins as rugs. And in 1926, he sold all of this to the Field Museum in Chicago for $5,000, you can still see them on display there although at this point there are a lot of replacement parts uh in the in the taxidermy. Yeah, their uh their skins were you know used as rugs so they were badly damaged and there was a lot of restoration that had to happen. And they really only had the skins and the skulls so the rest is uh sculpted and they have an incredible taxidermy team at the field and it's really quite a, an impressive piece of work. They're so skilled. And I wanted to mention that one of the things that really shines through in Patterson's writing is how much, despite all of these lion difficulties, and possibly even partially because of them, uh, he seemed to really love his job and his time in Tsavo. Uh, he speaks so wistfully of eating lunches in the wild, even when these lions were out there, and the joy of finding solutions to engineering challenges while the building of the Tsavo Bridge was underway as part of the railway. It's a really good read. I highly recommend it. Um it it's just he has a great uh way with language and telling his story and it has led some people to be like he's a really good storyteller. So we don't know how much has been embellished although there are enough different accounts that we know most of this is in fact the way it went down. It's pretty substantiated at yeah. this point. Um but that is the story of the the pair of lions that murdered dozens of men in 1898 and we'll get into just how many in the next one because that has been a bone of contention. Yeah. Uh, it's such a scary and fascinating story and, uh, you kind of can't help but have respect for these animals because they really were quite cunning and, uh, as much as what they were doing was horrifying, it's a little bit of an eye opener, I think. People use the term dumb animal and they don't really realize. Yeah, no, they're problem solvers. They they can figure things out, and they outwitted a lot of men who were bright gentlemen who wanted nothing more to kill them, and they couldn't for quite some time. So yeah, well, nine months it took to kill these two lions that were hitting this same stretch of land over and over. Yeah, well, and today we we mostly talk about the uh like the the downsides of development in terms of. Uh, like eating up animal habitat and causing extinctions Mm. and things and a lack of biodiversity and stuff like that. But not as much attention today is paid to the fact of when humans start moving into an area that animals have mostly been running the show in the, the animals themselves can also be a threat to the people. Like it's not just a matter of, you know, we're going to have fewer species in the world because we're eating up all the habitats. There's also the and then the reason that we have things like shark attacks and bear attacks and lion attacks is that there are people in places where these animals used to be the ones running the show. Yeah. So next time we are going to talk more about the science and analysis of why they were doing this, how they were doing it and, um, you know, what was actually going on. From a scientific angle, which yeah. is super cool. I love the behavioral stuff. Do you have some listener mail for us before we go? I do. Uh, this one is from Kirk, and he says, Hi, Holly and Tracy. Uh, coincidentally, I was listening to your Hessian podcast yesterday while l- landing at Frankfurt Airport. I could see Hess from my seat. That's so cool. Uh, I'm a descendant of a Hessian soldier, Johann Bernard Schalhaz, who surrendered to George Washington after the Battle of Yorktown. I've spent my life explaining the difference between mercenaries and adjunct armies. FYI, after the war, Hessians were actually encouraged to defect and settle here rather than going back to Hess. My ancestor married a nice Pennsylvania Dutch girl and moved to Virginia. Uh, and then he references some research... Uh, that was done by a fellow Hessian descendant. But Kirk, if you're listening, you didn't include the link. Please do it because I would love to read it. Yeah. But it's an interesting thing. One, to have a direct link, we always love those, and we mm-hmm. talk about it all the time. And two, uh, the idea that they were kind of encouraged, like just stay here. It's going to be easier than shipping you back. Yeah. We got several, like several notes and Facebook comments and things from people who whose immediate response was, "My ancestor was yeah. one of these soldiers." Yeah. Uh and we've we've had some who were encouraged to stay after the fighting was over and some who pretty much got here and went, Hey, this place this is seems nice. okay. Let's desert now <laughs> yeah. instead of fighting. And go start a nice farm somewhere. I can see the appeal. Oh, me too. Oh yeah. Uh Kirk wrote to us on Facebook. If you would like to do the same, you can do so at Facebook.com slash history class stuff. Uh you can connect with us on Twitter at Mist in History. On Tumblr at mistinhistory.tumblr.com and you can email us at historypodcast at We are also on Pinterest, pinning away many things. There are some images of actions and their, uh, jaunty uniforms that we talked about in the podcast up there now. If you would like to learn more about what we talked about today, you can go to our website and type in the words man-eating lion and the article that will pop up first is, is there such a thing as a man-eating lion? The short version is yes, but there's also some really cool, interesting research in that article uh, that talks about why there is. And if you would like to learn about almost anything else you can think of, you can do that at our website, which is HowStuffWorks.com. For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit HowStuffWorks.com. Audible.com is the leading provider of downloadable digital audiobooks and spoken word entertainment. Audible has more than 100,000 titles to choose from to be downloaded to your iPod or MP3 player. Go to audiblepodcast.com slash history to get a free audiobook download of your choice when you sign up today. I get past the fluff to what's real. We go there, and it's fun, pretty crazy, and very revealing. Listen to Let's Be Real with Sammy J. on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Available now from iHeart, a new series presented by T-Mobile for Business, The Restless Ones. Join me, Jonathan Strickland, as I explore the coming technological revolution with the restless business leaders who stand right on the cutting edge. They know there is a better way to get things done, and they are ready, curious, excited for the next technological innovation to unlock their vision of the future. In each episode, we'll learn more from the Restless Ones themselves and dive deep into how the 5G revolution could enable their teams to thrive. The Restless Ones is now available on the iHeartRadio app or wherever you listen to podcasts.